me declaro pecador, no lo veo mal. Evaluar cómo ese proceso que llaman de dolarización puede servir para la recuperación y despliegue de las fuerzas productivas del país y el funcionamiento de la economía. Una válvula de escape. Nicolás Maduro has ruled Venezuela ever since gaining power in 2013. As we enter 2022, Maduro's group in power is as strong as ever, while the mainstream political opposition is largely in shambles. But are the promises of the Bolivarian Revolution, socioeconomic equality, horizontal social movements, participatory democracy, and revolutionary development, have they been met after 20 years of Chavismo? Is there such a thing as Madurismo that explains contemporary Venezuela? Has the country's emerging energy market, including oil, blockchain technology, and the Orinoco mining arc sidelined the promises of progressive development? For our 10th episode of Veneco Podcast, we have Antulio Rosales, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of New Brunswick, to unpack these changes. A native Venezuelan, Antulio's research focuses on natural resource extraction and the politics of energy and development, particularly as it relates to Venezuela. Antonio, it is very great to have you on the show, as I believe this is our first episode where we will talk about a more contemporary Venezuela. That is a Venezuela that has perhaps made a complete transition from 21st century socialism to madurismo or to what some are now calling a Pax Bodegonica. Anyhow, Antonio, welcome to the Veneco podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. It's, a, it's my pleasure, Juan Andres. Thank you. Antulio, let's begin right off the bat with defining the current political economy of Venezuela. Many who do not follow Venezuelan politics closely still remember the Bolivarian project of former President Hugo Chavez as a, let's say, revolutionary departure from the neoliberal ethos of the 1980s and 1990s. In fact, many multilateral institutions at the time hailed Venezuela as a regional champion in reducing income inequality. Now, in the last two years, we have seen a partial dollarization of the Venezuelan economy, increased privatization of the oil sector, and a recent survey by Encovi now claims Venezuela is the most unequal country in the region. You've recently called this for a piece in Nueva Sociedad magazine, A Perestroika Without Glassnut. Can you elaborate and explain to us what changed and how did this change come about? Yes, yes, that's a, of course a very pertinent question because... Uh, as you mentioned, uh, the Venezuelan Bolivarian Revolution uh, was founded on different pillars uh, than uh, the traditional sort of neoliberal uh, orthodoxy that kind of reigned Latin America in the 1990s. And the pillars were centered around state control of the economy, of course, and it, it sought to redistribute wealth via controlling um, the oil industry, via controlling um, the income of uh, the wealth coming from oil, and doing that through strict government controls over currency markets, first of all, but then clearly also over price control, over prices in retail and other sectors, etc. And also expanding the role of the state uh, by purchasing enterprises, etc., in different in different sectors. And Many things changed and actually forced Maduro to to kind of turn around in this in this policy. Although at first, when Maduro arrived in the in the presidency in 2013, he actually doubled down on this model. He kind of re-emphasized st uh, state control um, over the economy, uh, tried to en to enforce price controls, and actually strengthen currency controls 
when he considered that devaluing the currency would have actually increased instability for him. So he was kind of concerned about that and he kind of doubled down on that model. Even though there were warnings coming in from within the government, particularly from uh, the former president of PDVSA, Rafael Ramirez, who actually called for a bringing about a modernization of the currency system that was really hurting the oil industry. And, and he kind of decided to not do that uh, in the first couple of years. Of, uh, of his government. But very strong external and internal pressures was what changed and actually made him change course. And he decided to, um, to do what I have called a targeted liberalization or a splintered liberalization of the economy. And it's very important here, and that's why the, the, the article you cited is important is because he did that in order not to lose power. So the idea was to liberalize the economy in order to keep on the grip on power. So it is perestroika without glasnost. It's not liberalizing the political system, but actually to retrench the state and the political elite of uh, that is around PSUV. And doing that, keeping that um, still on hold, while liberalizing certain sectors of the economy because of pressures from abroad, particularly U.S. imposed sanctions and, um, and after a, a deep decline of oil, oil, oil prices that came about in, in 2014 and onward. So all of these pressures came on at kind of as a perfect storm and Maduro decided to make certain changes. And this is what has changed. So on the one hand, um, uh, re-privatizing certain, cer certain sectors that the state just could no longer run. It didn't do it ever efficiently or, or in, in, in successfully, and it returned those to the private sector. That's one, one first thing that, it, that he did. And he's done that in a very opaque manner with very little oversight and with, without actually people knowing who are the new owners of these enterprises and you know, under what arrangements they came, up, they came about to, the, to return this to the private sector. So that's one, one area. Another area that is very important, and it kind of, it's a very interesting because it came about almost spontaneously and it continues to be a little bit spontaneous, and that is the currency system. That's what most, you know, what, what right now most people talk about in the media, right? Is that, you know, this so-called socialist revolution um, is a, a quasi-dollarized economy. And this is something that we, could, we had seen, and I, I remember going to Venezuela in, in 2019 and already noticing the kind of spontaneous use of the U.S. dollars because the government could not keep up with printing out the money that it was actually issuing. So the government was so inefficient at, that it was increasingly issuing, current, issuing money without actually printing, printing them out. So people lacked cash and some people, you know, decided they sorted to using dollars. And, and that was kind of the first layer of that, of that move to, toward dollarization. But there was a breaking point in March of 2019 when there was a major blackout, a major blackout in the country. Uh, due to government inefficiency, mal, you know, malinvestment in the in the in the protection of the of the hydroelectric system, and that actually brought about a, a, a kind of serious crisis. You know, several days without without power, and people could not pay for you know for basic goods and services and things that they required urgently because they lacked energy. So. Again, this spurred you know the use of U.S. dollars in cash and pesos as well as reals, etc on the streets of the country. And eventually 
with, again, the pressure of sanctions, uh, Maduro decided that allowing the circulation of dollars was, was, a, was a good idea. And it was, as he called it, an escape valve. And he didn't explain why, but what he really meant was an escape valve for, um, for resentment and concerns of the population that could have erupted into, you know, into a dramatic social out, uh, outbreak. And it, and it did not happen. So he allowed these things to happen. And the other aspect of the liberalization that has taken place is a kind of a trade type re-liberalization. That is kind of costumes that are not taxing imports that are coming in, you know, with, with very little control, even sanitary control or any other kinds of control. And they're just allowing imports to come in and people to use that and to, sit, to create this retail sort of bubble that has emerged through the so-called bodegones or these luxury markets. First luxury, but also mixed, you know, if you go to a bodegon, you would see things like diapers that are not luxury items, but, you know, that could have been in the past, you know, in the past five years, scarce, you know, and difficult to find, uh, together with, you know, um, Norwegian salmon or caviar or Nutella or what have you, that is more of a luxury item, um, all of those in dollarized prices. So this retail bubble has also came about, has also come about um, in this liberalization. So these are the kind of three larger features, you know, the use of a dollar, the you know the reprivatization of certain certain enterprises, and this more retail um, aspect of the liberalization, is what people are noticing now as a new model. And what I think it's important to to highlight about this is that the government has decided to loosen control, to to give more. Um, freedom to enterprises and to entrepreneurs to, to, you know, to operate in the economy um, with certain conditions. And this is why the, the term that you mentioned, the Pax Bodogonica, um, uh, it, that I think is very important. It's, it's a term coined by Guillermo Aveledo Col, our colleague, and, and who is a, you know, a brilliant scholar of Venezuelan, of, of Venezuelan politics. Um, he, I think he's, very, he's right about this. The fact that, of the matter is that the government has given up on certain controls as a concession. This is not something that the government is doing because it believes truly on a, I don't know, in a free economy or in a liberal model, um, but it is a concession in order to keep its grip on power. I think that's one first important lesson that we have to learn about this term. And the other issue is that the government is doing this in a kind of an ad hoc manner. So there are very little changes in the, in the, in the legal framework. I mean, there is very little legal framework right now to, to, to latch onto. It's very difficult for investors to actually think, you know, what is the guidelines that the government is, is setting up? You know, we know very little about the, the contracts that are being signed in the oil industry, et cetera, which tells us the following. It tells us that the government can redress or can change course whenever it considers it necessary or, or up to their desires. So I think that's another important aspect of this liberalization. Is, that is what I call it a targeted liberaliz um, liberalization or a splintered liberalization. It's not something that the government is doing because it believes in it, nor is it because it's, it believes that it's, it should be a permanent thing. We don't know yet how permanent that could be or how deep it will get uh, and to what extent it will last. Right. And you're actually bringing up a very important point by 
pointing to the to this perfect storm of internal and external pressures. But do you think, Antulio, some of these economic and developmental changes would have come about were it not for the impact of sectoral economic sanctions by the United States and other international actors? In other words, how genuine is this change? Are they the product of an epiphany by the Venezuelan elite realizing their economic mistakes? Or do you think in the end the Maduro regime seeks to, at some point, return to the massive spending levels of the Chavez years once oil prices rebound? The first thing is, you know, uh, to what extent, uh, or, or is there a counterfactual? Can we, can, we, can we imagine that the government would have done this had not been for sanctions? Well, of course, it's very hard to answer that. And, and, um, uh, and I think that the point is that there are sanctions and the government felt that pressure. And at the beginning of the government, the government actually refused to do many of these things, like you know, like devaluing the currency and allowing um, the Bolivar to actually be more competitive in the international market and allowing the circulation of dollars in different ways. I mean, the government had refused to do this in the past. I don't know how committed the, the, the Maduro elite and his surroundings is at this point point in maintaining these changes forever. And the point is that this is the, that these structural conditions remain in place. And it's very hard for, for these conditions to change, like sanctions, for instance, if there is not a, a political solution that comes a, along with it. So we know that the one thing is tied to the other. And because the government wants to keep its keep on power, I believe that, this, that these policies are here to stay because sanctions will not be lifted unless there is a change in the political way in which things are managed. Now, there are other structural conditions that are also in place and are even more difficult to change. And I think that refers to the oil industry. And the Venezuelan oil industry had been in frank decay for a long time, and that was masked. It was basically, it had a facade um, that, that the government could maintain for a long time because oil prices were extremely high for a long time and because they could continue to rely on foreign lending and foreign investment, especially coming from China, to keep some you know, basic levels of production afloat. And this is no longer the case. China does not believe in the Venezuelan government uh, to keep its stability and to do to to pay with its word, you know what it's apparently supposed to do. So it's very hard, I think, that they will receive again massive investments in the oil industry in a context, in a global context, where we know that the oil market is finite. You know there is immense pressures from governance levels, but also from economic um, um, uh, levels to actually redress and, 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 uh, and to lower our consumption of hydrocarbons globally because of the pressures of climate change. And so in a country like Venezuela that requires massive investments in the oil industry, it is very hard to see that, um, that these investments will come to a such complicated context. And so this, this is another important constraint that, that makes me think that it's very difficult that the government, even if it can increase its oil, its oil production in the medium term, it is very difficult that it can go back to that kind of 
pillar of the Venezuelan, of the Venezuelan economy and rely on it in order to, to kind of expand its largesse, as you suggested, in the near future and expand the state's power over the economy and you know, re-spend, redistribute, etc. I think that's very difficult. And that's, I will end this, this question with, with just one particular comment to tell you a little bit of how I think the government was already um, planning on this experimentation, on this idea of, of making laboratories of quasi-liberalization with quite devastating consequences. And I think that is the Orinoco mining arc. Mm -hmm. And that ties both things together. It ties the international constraints and the structural economic constraints. So on the structural economic constraints, I think it's very clear that the government was aware of the conditions of the oil industry and that it, it, they were not good and that it was very difficult to expand oil extraction and on production and oil, oil, oil trade. And therefore, the government decided to go into the mines where it had been operating somewhat illegally and in an artisanal way for, for many years and kind of um, revamp this project of the Orinoco Mining Arc and do that in alliance with foreign or local private enterprises and do it in a sort of somewhat targeted liberalized way. So that is that comes before sanctions. Um, but then sanctions are imposed on the country. And instead of, and it, of, of course, it includes all, uh, the Venezuelan gold. But instead of that inhibiting or pre preventing that, that business model from, from operating, what it did is that it deepened it and it expanded it. Because what, what the Venezuelan government has done is to use that gold to, in, in, through informal and illegal ways, find ways to uh, access uh, cash dollars to buy, um, you know, different light crude, for example, from Iran, or, or purchase other goods and services that it requires in the international market. So what, it, what this tells me is that, that the, the government had already some ideas on what kind of economic experimentation it wanted to carry out. And that even if, it, if the entire the extent of this liberalization did not come out of their, their, kind of their, their, their heart in terms of an ideological commitment to it, I think right now there are enough constraints, both structurally in the Venezuelan economy and internationally, that make it very difficult to go away from it. And speaking of mining, and something that I'm increasingly interested in, and I know that you've also written a lot about, is that of cryptocurrency blockchain technology. Now, the crypto industry has exploded in Venezuela in recent years. We see more and more people engaging as well in uh, gaming and NFTs. At the same time, Maduro unveiled in 2018 the Petro, a digital currency that was supposed to circumvent economic sanctions. Uh, can you tell us, Antulio, who uses Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies in Venezuela and how do these differ from the Petro experiment and why is this happening in Venezuela? Is crypto here to stay in the country? Well, it, I think I think this is, a, of course, a, a point that is very interesting and, and attracts my attention a lot. And um, we have to think about the origins of how Bitcoin became a, something you know, attractive for Venezuelans. And it had to do with the original government sanctioned con constraints on the currency market. And uh, that kind of made an incentive, produced an incentive for people to go out and mine cryptocurrencies because it was a, an easy way to save on a different currency that uh, was not the Venezuelan Bolivar and they could kind of escape the, the, 
the consequences of inflation and devaluation, right? But at the same time, they were, they were basically uh, leveraging uh, something that very, not many people are talking about. They were basically leveraging one important aspect of the Venezuelan economy, and that is that electricity is given away for free. And so, uh, so I'm talking about a particular demographic of Venezuelans, especially in the years 2013, 2014, um, that had been, you know, I'm talking about middle class Venezuelans in the urban areas uh, with somewhat technological uh, knowledge and, and savviness, generally young males who had enough money to invest in this mining terminals that they could buy from China and have them mailed to a mailbox in, the, in Miami and then shipped back to Venezuela. And they could set them, set them up in their, at their homes. And at that, time, at that point, in the, in the kind of cryptocurrency markets, you could, being a residential miner, and make some money because you could still mine at that time. The amount of Bitcoins that had been mined was not a lot and you could still mine in that, at that lower capacity. And the Venezuelan energy was basically the main incentive, right? So there was kind of an incentive to, to, to save money and to kind of to bypass the Bolivar and you know, eventually get to dollars. But also the other thing is that, the, that basically the inputs were almost given away for free. And, uh, and that was kind of a, a, a clear in, in motivation for, for these kind of cohort of people. Now, uh, that has changed, of course, because the, the cryptocurrency market has changed. Bitcoin is a lot harder to mine. And so you need pools and larger pools and more industrial setups that is very difficult to accomplish in Venezuela because of actually the problems with energy provision, infrastructure, and all sorts of other issues that relate to security, etc. And that, at that point is when the catches an eye on, uh, um, on cryptocurrencies and realizes what the Venezuelan society is already doing and kind of steals the idea. In a way, there is this gray area in terms of, of, of regulation and, and you know, police begin to, um, to raid people and to literally steal their, their machinery and start using, using it themselves. You know? But on the other hand, the, Venezuelan, the government kind of latches on this idea and hires some folks to think about creating their own cryptocurrency, ultimately pegged to the value of the crude oil. And this did not succeed. Ultimately, uh, the Petro is just a unit of account. It is not a cryptocurrency, but cryptocurrencies continue to be used in Venezuela and, and traded in the Venezuelan market. And there, there are, as you mentioned, Venezuelans uh, hooked up to the cryptocurrency ecosystem, as I call it. So even though mining uh, is, may not be as profitable for individual miners, unless they are pulled together in, a, in larger groups and create a sort of a farm, farms, and, and that there are experiments of this with, with investments from the Venezuelan state there. We know there is an experiment in the Lara state. There is also an experiment in Zulia and even in Fuerte Tuna, apparently, mm. there is a, a mining farm. I, have, I haven't been able to prove that, but, but, but they promoted themselves. So the point is that although mining remains somewhat of a marginal activity, but, but it's still important in Venezuela, uh, what I think is even more important is, is that there are people hooked up to, to the broader ecosystem of, 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 of cryptocurrencies. And I think that that is a, a feature that will remain. The fact of the matter is that there are people playing in, in this play to gain uh, sort of models like Axie Infinity associated to NFTs and Ethereum. And uh, this kind of model um, is, 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 
if it's going to thrive anywhere, it's going to thrive in the context of Venezuela and for several reasons. One is that structural issue that I was speaking about, this kind of volatile yet extremely cheap energy provision. And the other thing is the precariousness of life. The fact that if, you know, that people who, you know, who could earn $100 a month by playing Axie Infinity and they have no better option, I mean, that solves you know, some problems and why not playing for two or three hours a day uh, and to collect that money. In a, in a different context, this would make no sense. I mean, in a context like Canada or Norway or, or even in other contexts in Latin America like Chile, this would be very difficult because $100 does not give you enough, right? But in the Venezuelan context where people are doing different things and, and actually trying to engage in different forms of labor, uh, one member of the family could be doing, you know, this game and, uh, and taking advantage of this, you know, somewhat um, inexpensive provision of electricity, internet that is kind of bad and chaotic, but you can, it can still allow you to play a game, then um, it, it can flourish in a context like that. So I'm talking about two important things, that kind of volatile and cheap uh, provision of electricity, and on the other hand, the precariousness and volatility of day life. You just listened to the sounds of Simon Diaz and Amazonic Vibes, and this is episode 10 of Veneco, a podcast on Venezuelan democracy and social movements. And if you're listening to us on Spotify, please be sure to use its newest feature and leave us a rating, a five-star rating, we hope, if you've enjoyed this conversation so far. Not only is this a kind gesture, but it also helps with the algorithm promote the podcast and makes it easier for others to reach fascinating conversations with academics, researchers, and experts on Venezuelan democracy and social movements like Antulio and others. Similarly, you can find this podcast on Apple and Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, wherever you get your podcasts, and our website, www.venecopodcast.com. My name is Juan Andres Misle, and we're talking energy, development, cryptocurrency, and much more with Antulio Rosales, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of New Brunswick. So, Antulio, I would be remiss if we didn't talk about last week's uh, repeat election in the state of Barinas, the state where former President Chavez was born and where his family has ruled for over the last 20 years. The opposition against all odds defeated the ruling power candidate Jorge Arreaza. And I was listening the other day to Sergio Garrido, the winning opposition candidate, saying he would prioritize health, education, and water issues during his tenure as governor of Barinas, which some would argue is a better strategy than the opposition's historically preferred strategy centered on civil liberties and political freedoms. You know, nonetheless, it's still it's still unclear to me and to a lot of people what the opposition's proposal for development would be at this point in time. We're already seeing massive inequality and at least a partial liberalization of the economy. Would the opposition's pursuit of development be that different than what we're seeing right now? Could you see them actually doing anything to tackle inequality? Well, I think that's an excellent question that we should ask them. Uh, and, and of course, the, 
I think that that the point would be which opposition, right? I mean, um, there is a variety of actors intervening in public debate, and there is very little, in fact, um, that they have said. What would they would they do in terms of of, of social development and develop and economic development in general? So there is kind of an idea or a group within the opposition that is kind of closer to an economic liberalism. So the the, the the type of discourse around Vente and some parts of Voluntad Popular, mm -hmm. who would be akin to a kind of true, direct, and widespread liberalization of the economy that would actually retrench the state away from the economy, but do that in a kind of legal and, uh, and uh, kind of permanent, or at least purportedly permanent way, you know, through, through the law and, um, and actually set up the state to to actually allow only for for established contracts basically to to be to be sanctioned and to and, and to protect um, economic actors in the economy there is definitely however a large group of the opposition that would be more in kind of a a between the social democrat and the christian democrat center that has basically characterized the venezuelan um, mainstream political parties for a long time, which the right tends to call socialists anyway. Um, but I would say that this group, um, if, if they were to ask, I don't know, I mean, again, we have to do more research on in terms of what they've proposed, but I believe that, uh, that the message that you, that you refer to by Sergio Garrido, what really is talking about is reclaiming the role of the state and rebuilding the state and 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 a kind of a public sphere you know what it is that the state ought to do it ought to provide certain services to the population that is part of its responsibilities and uh, this is something that if if a democratic um, solution came to be needs to be at the core of the development agenda is to rebuild the state to rebuild its capacity, its capacity to provide services. And in order to provide services, it would need to tax people and it would need to actually provide productive in incentives to, to move away from oil into more productive enterprises. I don't know how clear uh, that this agenda is in the Venezuelan opposition at the moment, because as I said, it's, it's a diverse group. But, um, but I, I think the message is going in that direction in many in many of these personalities and they're they're coming out to talk about what it is needed it, they're really talking about rebuilding a public sphere rebuilding the state and and the public sphere in a way that that the state is committed to doing certain things that the that citizens require like providing education health and you know the famous discussion around water, which is a major issue at the moment in the country. We don't know, however, if governors will be able to do that because the gov governorships have been stripped away of their of their power and their capacity to actually do any of that. Like the state in general, but the central government has managed to hollow out the power of those of those entities by creating you know, part of the budgets that make those entities actually be meaningless, no? Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, the, the most important challenge now is to what extent will these governors be able to do something and deliver if there is no a, a agreement in the country that they have to be allowed to do so and that the government has to um, provide the funds that are constitutionally mandated to, to, to provide and channel to those entities.
I mean, after all, it, it's it's no surprise that Sergio Garrido comes from the more moderate social democratic tradition of Acción Democrática, so that would explain the emphasis on day-to-day -day needs. Uh, but I want to wrap up this conversation talking about civil society more broadly in Venezuela. As we've established throughout this conversation, there are new actors calling the shots in Venezuela. We have seen mass migration in recent years. Some estimates show that as many as 10% of the population left the country in the last years. While at the same time, we see less and less political participation during electoral processes, perhaps less mobilization from social movements. This is a similar phenomenon that we that was observed in Latin America in the 1990s during the periods of structural adjustment, and not just in Venezuela, but in Argentina, Mexico, Peru, and others, where precarious labor conditions demobilized labor and other sectors of civil society. Do you sense that civil society in Venezuela has simply lost all hope of true participatory deliberations and would just rather day-to-day -day needs be met no matter what type of regime is in place for them? Well, no, I, I don't think they lost any all hope. In fact, I think that the retrenchment of the state and the hollow, being hollowed out the state as, a, as an actor that is um, accountable to the population has made, actually has strengthened civil society. Civil society, civil society has stepped up to the challenge of providing services that it, that it could no longer provide, that, they, that, that the state refused to provide. I mean, and, we, and here we have several examples. I mean, it comes from very simple things that, you know, you mentioned the, the, the survey in Kobe, which is a consortium of universities uh, led by the, uh, by the Catholic University, uh, Andres Abello. Uh, basically, the, the academic world and universities in particular, researchers got together with funding from abroad and decided to actually provide the, 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 the statistics and the indicators that the government and the Venezuelan state refused to provide, even though it was mandated to do so. So these are the things, these are examples of how the civil society has stepped up and has began to do things that, it, that, you know, that the state no longer decided to do. And, um, but with that, there is so many other examples. I mean, people are in from charity work to or organizing around problems in, in the different locales of the country in order to, to solve demands. And the thing is, that because of, of state repression and the, the, the decision of the Venezuelan government to not, um, not allow channeling of democratic demands through voting for, for an important period of time, there was a hiatus of competitive elections in Venezuela from 2015 onward. So the Venezuelans went, went on, the, on the streets and then they were heavily repressed, right? And so you have, you know, the, an expulsion of people on the one hand, you know, a massive migration, and on the other hand, a retrenchment into, you know, working and solving problems in, in directly on the ground. So now there, this, is, this is a, a very important challenge at the, at, right at this moment, is when we see the fact that the government has stabilized, it managed to stay in power, it opened up the economy, and it, by doing that, it has um, empowered new actors that it not necessarily knew it would empower it because some of, these, uh, some of these actors that have benefited from the liberalization of the economy are of course actors that are associated to the government, but not all of them are. So 
there is the empowerment of certain sectors and, and civil society that is, you know, influenced and, and maybe funded from abroad and other places, uh, may have some autonomy to be able to reclaim changes uh, in the future. And now that the government needs to open up uh, to certain, at least a minimal semblance of institutionalization through uh, elections that are a bit more competitive in order to bring about a, a more credible negotiation internationally that could eventually lift sanctions. It is an important opportunity for these actors, to, these civil society actors to for, for now, again, for the first time in a long time, channel those concerns in a political way. So it, is, it would be an important challenge for the political elite of the Venezuelan opposition to actually listen to those demands of civil society, to incorporate them and to be in a productive dialogue that they could actually build an agenda around development issues and about social issues and about you know, women's rights, about environmental, environmental issues that could actually be more meaningful to Venezuelan society and to give us a strategy for a democratic transition. Of course, we don't know to what extent that, that would be possible, but it is the challenge that we have now. And we have a civil society that has been active around human rights, about, about environmental issues, about so, many other, about, about so many other issues that I think it is a good moment for that civil society to be heard and, uh, and to continue to, to bring up these this, uh, demands to political agendas too. That's very optimistic and forward-thinking, Antulio. I think I understand where you're coming from. And just to give an example, I would point to the Movimiento Dale Letra, which I know you've participated in one of their forums. So maybe there is reason for hope. But we're going to wrap it up there. I think you've given our audience a lot to ponder about. And as I've said, there's not a whole lot of English language analysis on Venezuela under Maduro. And I think you've done a fantastic job in explaining Madurismo as a new political and economic project. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Antonio Rosales is an assistant professor of political science at the University of New Brunswick. A native Venezuelan and an optimist, Antulio's research focuses on natural resource extraction and the politics of energy and development. And this was episode 10 of Veneco, Venezuelan Democracy and Social Movements. I'm Juan Andres Nisle. The theme song is by Simon Diaz and Amazonic Vibes.